We're continuing our study of David's life and the many things that the Lord did in and through David's life and and the variety of lessons that ultimately we're taught as we look at what God's Word says uh, related to all these different events. And this morning, we're going to be spending time in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we're going to see the fact that We've been offered a seat at the king's table. Now, you're going to see in just a moment why I'm phrasing what we're going to look at this morning that way. But if you would, take your Bibles and and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I'm going to start off with verse 1. I'm going to read right down to verse 13. 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting with verse 1. This is what it states. And David said... Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still, or is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, So will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and really think about the things that you've communicated to us here. Lord, we're grateful to be able to look at these things and to think about the things that occurred in the immediate context that this portion of Scripture references, but also the greater application that we as your followers experience and are blessed by. Lord, we're just so thankful for the fact that that you invite us to dine with you. You invite us to live in close proximity with you. And Lord, we're grateful for the things that you teach us in an example like this. So we commit this time to you now, Lord. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts and, and prepare us to understand your word together. 
And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I was looking at uh, a few different things. From time to time, I actually like to look through family pictures and, and things like that. And I was actually looking through some things from three years ago. And uh, if you remember, in the spring of 2020, uh, right at this time, three years ago, that's when basically everything was shut down. And of course, you remember that. It was a very strange, very interesting period of time. And in the midst of that time, I was asked by my family to officiate for the funeral of my great aunt Janice. Uh, She was my grandfather's younger sister. And because of gathering restrictions that had occurred, you know, during the time, the funeral was going to be very, very small. In fact, the funeral home said we were limited to under 10 people, including me. So less than 10 people, including me, could be there. And I remember at at the time, like, if, you know, if if I'm honest about what I, what I thought of all of that, uh, I remember feeling like, it was actually a very sad way to say goodbye because so many people that would have liked to be present there couldn't be present for that moment. Now, I remember my sister, Tammy, who, by the way, is in the back row there. So, hey, welcome down today. Good to see you. Um, I remember her saying to me a few years ago, she, she was kind of just thinking about my role as a pastor and some of the things that I do in this role. And she said, I, I bet you I know what the hardest part of your job is. And uh, I, said, I said, what is that? And uh, she said, it's funerals, isn't it? And I said, surprisingly, it's not. I said, that's not the hardest part of what I do. And in fact, I've always, and this is probably a little bit of a, um, I, I think some people find this unexpected when I say this, but I do mean this. I've always considered it a privilege to officiate for funerals. And I think many people assume that that would be a, a, a part of what I do that, that I didn't like. But this, this is my thought on this. I've always considered it a privilege to be someone who gets the opportunity to speak on behalf of a family to honor the life or the legacy of the deceased. And when my family asked that I officiate for my Aunt Janice's funeral, obviously I said yes. Now the funeral was up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, which is a few hours north of us here. And as I drove there, I had a lot of time to think as I was driving. And one particular thought kept coming to my mind that morning as I was driving up there. My Aunt Janice's father was John Stonge Sr. So those of you that know how uncreative my family is, you know, we pick a name and we stay with it. So I'm, I'm actually John Stonge the fourth. Right? So let me, let me show you a little something here. That right there is John Stonge Sr. Now look at this really close. Look at the graying pattern in his hair. Like the weird gray stuff that my hair does. I look at that and I'm like, oh, so I got that from you. Thanks. I don't know if I really mean thanks, but I did get it from him apparently because there it is. But that's John Stonge. Also, do you know who this guy is? That's John Stonge also. That's my grandfather. Uh, when he was, I don't know, I, I think he's probably like 11 or 12 in that picture. But, uh, but yeah, that's John Stonge Sr. And that right there, well, that's my great-grandmother. Her name was Dora. And uh, that right there is Aunt Janice when she was just a little girl. And so um, this is what I was thinking of as I was driving up to Scranton. I was thinking, all right, you know, Aunt Janice's father was the original John Stonge, the man that my grandfather, my father, 
my son, who is the fifth, by the way, and myself are all named after. And here I was, John Stonge, being asked to officiate for the funeral of John Stonge's daughter. And as a father, to, uh, as a father myself, I kept thinking on that drive, I kept thinking about the fact that many decades ago, Aunt Janice was the original John Stonge's little girl. And so, you know, he'd hold her on his lap, he'd read to her, play games with her, he'd let her help him around his grocery store that he ran in Scranton's East Mountain section. And that morning, when I, when I arrived there and I prepared to speak and I stood up in front of everybody, I kept thinking about the fact that this wasn't just an opportunity to honor my aunt, it was also an opportunity to honor my great-grandfather, the man that I'm named after, and I thought, you know what, Like, even for his sake, I wanted to do a good job honoring the life and the memory of his little girl. That's literally what I kept thinking about all morning and all day. I thought, you know what, this is a responsibility that was entrusted to his great-grandson that I'm the one that will now be speaking on behalf of his little girl. And have you ever found yourself in a moment where you've decided to do something that you do because you know it would have pleased somebody that is long gone? Have you ever found yourself in a spot like that? You make a decision, you decide to do something because you know it would have been a, a appreciated or a, a blessing to or, or just that, that someone that's long gone would, would greatly appreciate what you're doing. And I bring up that story because in what we just read from 2 Samuel chapter 9, that's the exact position that David found himself in. Found himself in that exact position. In the years prior to his ascendancy to the throne of Israel, David had a best friend. And his best friend was named Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, at this point, when you look at the events of 2 Samuel chapter 9, at this point he was no longer living. But David had in his heart that he wanted to honor him. And he wanted to honor Jonathan's family. If you know anything about Jonathan's background, Jonathan was actually the son of King Saul. And during Jonathan's life, uh, Jonathan and David were tight friends. David even at one point said, he's literally the person that I'm closest to on the face of this earth. He's my absolute best friend. And it's also interesting when you consider the fact that Jonathan's father, Saul, spent a lot of time trying to kill David. He was jealous of David. He felt threatened by David. And back in the days when Saul was actually trying to kill David, it was actually Jonathan who frequently would step in and help David. And as he did so, he also accepted the fact that there would be a day when David would be king. So imagine being, you know, the son of the present king helping someone that, that really has the opportunity to take the throne that in your mind you could be thinking, now wait, that throne could be mine. But yet Jonathan is saying, no, like the Lord has ordained that David be king. And I want to preserve his life. I want to help him. I want to be a blessing. And so knowing and accepting and welcoming the fact that the, the day would come when David would be king, Jonathan actually made a covenant with David. And it's interesting when you look at 1 Samuel chapter 20, when you look at verses 14 to 16, it tells us about that covenant that they made. 
And Jonathan said this. These are Jonathan's words here. He says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. So he's saying from my family, right? Don't cut off your steadfast love from my family forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And then it says, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. So this is the covenant that occurred between these two men. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, which we read just a few minutes ago, those days since that covenant had been made had now long passed. That had been a while at this point. Both Saul and Jonathan were both dead at this point. And David was in one of those moments, and you probably have these moments, I certainly do, where you start getting reflective and you start thinking back to earlier seasons of life. Honestly, the older I get, the more that happens. And I read somewhere it's because you get to a spot where where most of your life is behind you and not ahead of you, and so you get very reflective. And I'm like, am I at that spot? I don't know how long I'm going to live, so I don't know. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I'll be optimistic and say, nah, I'm just warming up to that. But I think about that. I I, I get reflective, and I think David here was, was getting a bit reflective, He's thinking back to an earlier season of life. He was thinking about the promises that he had made to Jonathan. And in the midst of that contemplation, you have David saying something very interesting. He kind of just reveals what's on his mind and on his heart. When you look at 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, he says this, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So he's thinking about their friendship. He's thinking about the pledge. He's thinking about the covenant that he made. And he just wants to know, is there somebody from Saul's household, that I could just, from that lineage, from Jonathan's lineage, that I could show kindness to. So someone I could show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. And David was told that Jonathan's son Mephibosheth was still living. Why didn't he just name him Jonathan? You know, like, why do you have to go with Mephibosheth? You have a name like Jonathan. It's a very easy name, and he goes with Mephibosheth. That's a tricky name to say. Imagine trying to preach a sermon where you have to say that name 50 times. Um, Thank you for your compassion. But David was told that Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, was still living. And by the way, at this point, Mephibosheth is an adult. He has a son of his own. But he was also told that Mephibosheth was still, that he was crippled in both of his feet. And and it's kind of an interesting detail. You're like, well, why is that there? Why is that statement, why does it tell us about the fact that he's crippled in both of his feet? And by the way, earlier in the book of 2 Samuel, uh, we're actually told how that injury occurred when you look at verse four of chapter four. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So that was the news that they had died. He was five years old when that news came about, and it says, and his nurse took him up and fled. So she's thinking what? That people might try and kill the boy, right? Because typically when there's a change in king, you know, most cultures would then eradicate the descendants, right? And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. So both of his feet got injured in the process. And his name was Mephibosheth. So that's earlier in the book of 2 Samuel. And so being told that Mephibosheth was still living and being told, you know, that that Jonathan still had, had this son, David sent for him. And he had him brought before him. Now, again, 
historically, kings have had a habit of eradicating and executing the descendants of, of rival kings when there would be a transfer of power. And so I'm pretty confident that Mephibosheth was a little bit uncomfortable about being summoned before the king. And do you ever have somebody do that to you, and even in a small way, when someone says, hey, I got something I got to talk to you about? Can I ask a favor? If you ever have something you got to talk to me about, give me the subject also. You know, don't be like, yeah, we could talk like in four days. And for four days, you get to wonder what I, what I really need to talk to you about. It's like, did, and in your mind, you're like, did I do something? What, like, what, what is it? Like, what's wrong? And then you're like, yeah, I'm like, I just have this hangnail, and it really, like, is bothering me. And I wondered if you had, like, good clippers I could borrow. Four days, you made me wait on that one, right? But he, I imagine Mephibosheth, as he's thinking, all right, you know, I'm, I'm being summoned before the king. I think he was probably nervous about that summoning. I think the entire time he was on his way, he was probably thinking, what's going to happen? Like, is this my last day? Is this the finale? Like, is this my last day? Is, this, is, is David going to, is he going to do something to me? And so we're told that as he appeared before David, he comes very humbly, he bows down, which would have been customary. He humbled himself. Uh, he actually called himself two different things. One, he called himself a servant, but he also referred to himself as a dead dog in that same conversation. And in that culture, that would be something that, I mean, if you remember the, the mocking, um, you know, that occurred when David faced Goliath, and when you look at other different things, like it, it was a, a, a very common way to degrade somebody by referring to them either as a dog or a dead dog. And that's how Mephibosheth is referring to himself, calls himself a servant, calls himself a dead dog. And he wanted to make it abundantly clear to David that he did not consider himself worthy of standing before David's throne. And I'm also, I feel pretty confident that he feared that if he came across arrogantly in any way, that his life might be taken from him on the spot. I think all these things were probably going through Mephibosheth's mind. But it wasn't David's intention to harm him. When you look at what the Scripture tells us here, on the contrary, out of his love and respect for Mephibosheth's deceased father, Jonathan, you have David wanting to bless him. And when you get to verse 8 of 2 Samuel 9, David says this. It says, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now, father in the sense of like historical father, Saul was his grandfather. But David is saying, look, I want to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I'm going to give all your grandfather's land. I'm going to give it all to you. And you shall eat at my table always. Could you imagine that? You know, could you imagine being Mephibosheth in that moment? Hearing this after you've, you've been summoned before him. And by the way, I actually have this feeling that for a long time, Mephibosheth was probably hoping that he wasn't really thought of by David or discovered. Like, I actually have this feeling that he went through a large portion of his adult life just trying to stay below the radar and not really get noticed. But here you have Mephibosheth being told, told that he's being blessed in so many ways. So could you imagine being him in that moment as David pronounced this blessing? Now, keep in mind, up to this point, Mephibosheth had lived a very challenging life. He lost his father when he was a child. And, uh, you know, as we read, in the process of being cared for by his nurse, he was permanently injured. 
And again, I, would, I suspect that he was probably always wondering if a day was going to come when the king would decide to, to maybe just take some form of retribution against him because of his lineage, because he was a descendant of King Saul, and yet here he was being shown favor by the, the king instead. He's being shown favor. When you look at verses 9 through 11, it says, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 25 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And then it reiterates this, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Not a cool statement. Ate there like one of the king's sons. So with one quick sentence, Mephibosheth went from living at a distance from the king to now eating at his table like one of his sons. You went from obscurity to to being a wealthy landowner whose fields were going to be farmed by somebody else, and yet he personally would receive the produce and the profit from that farming. And I look at that and I think, isn't it amazing how drastically a life can be changed in just one day? It's a very drastic change in just one day. Now, I don't know if this occurred to you while we were reading through some of these portions of Scripture, these accounts of Mephibosheth's experiences, But I hope this occurred to somebody, because this is exactly what the Lord desires to do for us. This is the same thing He desires to do for us. He delights to take lost and lame people and give them a seat at His table. He loves to look at people who have nothing to offer Him and then bless them in spite of that. The gift of salvation, the gift of new life that we have through Jesus Christ, that's an amazing thing. And God offers us that gift, and it's not for His benefit that He offers us that gift, it's for our benefit. There isn't anything He needed that He didn't already have. There isn't anything we could have offered Him that He couldn't have spoken into existence without our help. And yet, in His compassion, He offers us an honored seat at His table. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? And by the way, as people who appreciate that, and I I have to tell you, that's something that I I certainly appreciate, and I know that so many of you appreciate that as well. Isn't it also interesting when you think about the fact that the Lord allows us to live in light of that reality? And as we live in light of that reality, it impacts not only the way we see ourselves, not only the way we perceive our future, but it also impacts the way we interact with other people. Do you ever think about the fact that the Lord has blessed you so that you get the opportunity to be a blessing to somebody else? Do you ever think about the fact that the Lord has shown you His compassion and His grace and His mercy and His love so that you would copy Him and so that you would mirror that and demonstrate that to somebody else? And isn't it a beautiful thing when He gives you the opportunity to do so? I love how Jesus speaks of living out this same example. When you look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, He tells this this story. He says, he also said to the man who had invited him, he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, 
the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's what Jesus describes in Luke chapter 14. Gives us a picture of of us having the opportunity to see what God has done in our life and then to live it out in the way we interact with other people. And I think even in David's moment of, of, of showing this kind of blessing to Mephibosheth, you see the heart of God on display in that context. You know, the truth is, when you think about the goodness that God has blessed us with through His Son, Jesus Christ, we can't repay our Heavenly Father for that goodness, can we? It's not something that I have the ability to repay Him for the goodness that He's done in my life. You don't have the ability to repay Him for the goodness that He's done in your life. But what we can do is this. We can follow His example. We can look at what He's done for us, and we can say, all right, I'm going to follow your example, Lord. I'm going to take the transformation that you've, occur- that you've caused to occur in my mind and in my heart, and I'm going to do my best with the power that you supply to copy you and to live this out, and to demonstrate your heart to other people in the life that I choose to live. So as men and women who are grateful for His willingness to reach into our lives, and by the way, we were living a life of spiritual poverty and spiritual infirmity, and what did He do? He made us rich in spiritual blessings and honor. And as men and women who have received that, we have the the privilege to start reaching into the lives of others, demonstrating that same kind of compassion. And we do that not for our glory, but we do that for the glory of Christ. We demonstrate the heart of Christ for the glory of Christ. And we do this every time we model the gospel. Think about this, like as as a recipient of the benefits and blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the privilege to then model that in the life that we live. We have the privilege to share it verbally and specifically with the words that we state, and we have the privilege to serve others for Christ's glory and in His name. These are opportunities that the Lord's giving to us as people who are saying, you know what, Lord, I'm thankful for Your blessings. I'm thankful for the fact that You reached into my life. You looked at me. I was in spiritual poverty. I was spiritually lame. I was distant from You. I had no spot at Your table, and You reached into my life, and You said, I'm going to change all of that, and I'm going to change it in a moment. I'm going to change the entire trajectory of your entire life in a moment. And I'm going to give you a future and an inheritance in my kingdom in a moment. And he did that for you and me through his son, Jesus Christ. As we trust in Jesus Christ, that's something that we have the privilege to be recipients of, and it's something we have the privilege to then model. Oftentimes, you know, I mean, like, who who of us, if if you're a believer in Christ, would you argue with the statement that we have the obligation to preach the gospel? We all do, right? I mean, it's not just the preacher trying to say Mephibosheth on Sunday morning, right? We all have the opportunity and the responsibility to preach the gospel. But most of the preaching that you and I do is not going to be from a pulpit. And it's not even going to look like preaching. It's going to look like conversations that we get to have because of actions we've chosen to take. That's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like questions we have the privilege to answer because of trust that we've built. I see a great example of that in the lives of my friends Fred and Deb. Last week, our family had the privilege to spend a little time in Florida. By the way, lovely state to visit when it's chilly up here. Lovely place. I like what they've done with it down there. And um, 
And so we, we were down there for a few days. And so last Sunday, where's Greg at? He usually sits over here. There he is. Awesome job. We were listening to Greg's sermon as we were driving to church last Sunday in Florida. The miracles of technology. I got to hear Greg preach while we were driving to my friend Fred's church down in, um, in Florida. And uh, then we went and we worshiped with my friend uh, Fred and his wife Deb and their family. And I see a great example of living out the gospel and preaching the gospel in Fred and Deb. They grew up in, I think at this point now, I hope they don't mind me saying this, I think at this point now they're maybe right around 70 years old. Um, he has not yet retired. They grew up together in Wisconsin, so they're not native Floridians, although they've been there, I think, for four decades now. They got married when they were young. They moved to Florida to start leading that church. They've raised a family together during that time. They also adopted a couple children and uh, they continue to be a blessing to those that the Lord sends their way. And recently, they learned something about the foster care system that uh, is operating right there in their community. They learned that it was overwhelmed with need. And one of the needs that the foster care system had was for stable families that were willing to allow temporarily displaced children to come and live with them for a period of time. And Fred and Deb started talking about this, and they said, you know, we're available to help. And so they, they let the foster care system know this, and almost immediately, very soon after they made that known to the foster care system, they were asked if they would take in for a period of 30 days twins, 14-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, 14-year-old twins. And they said, can they live with you for 30 days while their mother, while their mother finished serving a brief uh, prison sentence? And so Fred and Deb... Uh, said yes, and the kids came, and they said at first, you know, the kids were really shy. They would basically just stay in their bedrooms and not do a whole lot of interacting, but then that changed as they got to know each other a little bit, and, and Fred said he soon learned that the children had never once met their father. Never. They never met him, and they didn't even know his name, and they didn't know where he lived, so they had all sorts of assumptions, all sorts of, they, but they didn't know, but even though they had never met him, they thought about him all the time. They thought they'd never once met him. They thought about him all, their all the time. And as their month-long placement stretched on, it became clear to Fred that the boy, the boy twin in particular, was latching on to him. He basically wanted to do everything he saw Fred do. So Fred has some horses. So when Fred would carry like a feed sack over to the horses, this boy would try and lift a feed sack, like 50-pound feed sack, and carry it over and usually was able to do it. So whatever Fred was doing, carrying heavy things, anything, he wanted to help. If Fred was shopping at a hardware store, he discovered this, this uh, young boy had never been to a hardware store before. He said, you want to come to Home Depot with me? And so he brought him to Home Depot. So if he was shopping there, he wanted to come, and he wanted Fred to go through the aisles and explain what every one of the tools were and what they did. It's like, just tell me, like, what does that do? What does that do? What does that do? Can I try one? Do you own one of those? Can I try that when we get back to your house? And at the end of the month, when their mother was set to be released, the twins grew so close to Fred and Deb that they said to them, they didn't want to leave. They just wanted to stay. They wanted to stay. They loved living in that context. I don't know what you feel when you hear a story like that, but I have to tell you, one of the emotions I certainly feel when I see an example like that and hear a story like that is just gratefulness that the Lord looks with compassion upon us, spiritual orphans, and he assures us that we have a home with him forever. Forever, right? He's the father who will never leave 
and his table is open to anyone who believes. And that's regardless of your background. That's regardless of your ethnicity or your social status. Scripture is very clear. Anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ, anyone who will accept the sacrificial atonement he accomplished for them on the cross when he paid for our sin with the shedding of his blood, anyone who will trust in Jesus will be given a seat at the banquet table in the kingdom of God. What a beautiful reality. Love what Luke 13 tells us. Jesus said it this way in Luke 13, 29 and 30. He said, and people will come from the east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. What's Jesus saying? Table's going to have a lot of people from a lot of different places. And people that during the course of their earthly lives didn't have any sort of status or anything that you'd pat them on the back about, and yet they're going to be there and they're going to be honored. And there's going to be other people there that during their earthly life received plenty of honors, but they'll have a seat there, but it might not even be as good of a seat as the person who during the course of their earthly life really didn't experience any of that honor. And yet, People from the north and the south and the east and the west are going to come and they're going to, you know, the way they would eat in, that, in the culture of the time when Jesus was delivering these words. And maybe you do this now, I don't know. They would, they would like recline back. And by, you could fit more food in if you do that. It's a very practical thing, but they'd, they'd recline and they'd, or like sometimes they'd go like this, like they would lean on a table like this. In our culture, it's like, hey, don't put, don't put your elbows on the table, Right. If, if someone ever told you that, you were born in the wrong era, all right? In the, born in the wrong time. But like, you, you could recline like this, and, and uh, you know, it's a scientific fact. You could fit more food in if you, uh, if you stretch yourself that way. If you sit up nice and straight, you'll eat less. It's good if you want to lose weight, but if you don't want to lose weight, if you want to pack on a few more, recline, lean, more food goes in. Biologically true, test me on that. At lunch today, someone lean. Give your kids permission to lean at lunch today. Just one lunch. But Jesus said what? And behold, some are last who will be first, some are first who will be last. People will come from east and west, north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Max Lucado said something interesting about this that I read recently. He has a, a, a book. It, it's actually called Your Place at God's Table. And he said this... Uh, about an interesting experience he had. I'm just going to read what he said. He said, some months ago, I was late to catch a plane out of the San Antonio airport. And he said, I wasn't terribly late, but I was late enough to be bumped and to have my seat given to a standby passenger. When the ticket agent told me that I would have to miss the flight, I put to work my best persuasive powers. But the flight hasn't left yet, I said. Yes, but you got here too late. I got here before the plane left. Is that too late? The regulation says you must arrive 10 minutes before the flight is scheduled to depart, and that was two minutes ago. But ma'am, I pleaded, I've got to get to Houston this evening. And he said she was patient but firm. I'm sorry, sir, but the rules say passengers must be at the gate 10 minutes before scheduled departure time. I know what the rules say, I explained, but I'm not asking for justice. I'm asking for mercy. And then he said, she didn't give it to me. (laughs) 
But then he goes on. He says, but God does. Even though by the book, I'm guilty. By God's love, I get another chance. Even though by law, I'm indicted. By mercy, I'm given a fresh start. Scripture says, for it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. No other world religion offers such a message, Lucato goes on to say. He says, all others demand the right performance, the right sacrifice, the right chant, the right ritual, the right seance or experience. Theirs is a kingdom of trade-offs and barterdom. You do this, and, and this God will give you this or give you that, and the result either arrogance or fear. Arrogance if you think you've achieved whatever it is, and fear if you think you haven't. Then he said one more thing, and he says, Christ's kingdom is just the opposite. It's a kingdom for the poor, a kingdom where membership is granted, not purchased. You are placed into God's kingdom. You are adopted, and this occurs not when you do enough but when you admit you can't do enough. You don't earn it. You simply accept it. And as a result, you serve not out of arrogance or fear, but out of gratitude for what Christ has done for you. Mephibosheth was grateful to be given a seat at the king's table. And he knew it was a seat that he didn't deserve. Through Jesus, we're given a seat at the king's table. We came broken. We came lame. We came with a disgraced family name. But what does Christ do for us? He heals us. He stands us up straight. And then he gives us his name as our heritage forever. And he delights at the thought of you and me reclining at that table in his kingdom with him forever. That is the offer that God has made to humanity. Now, if your heart has been warmed to trust in Christ and receive that, isn't that a wonderful blessing to think about? And isn't it something to pray about that the Lord would use your gratitude for what he has done in your life to inspire opportunities that you choose to take in your interactions with other people, to give them a taste of what you're already tasting so that they get to taste it too. The table's big. The Lord wants us there. He desires that we be there. Scripture says it's not His, his desire that humanity perish. It's not His desire that we live in a, an eternity at, at a distance from Him. He wants us at that table. And he speaks to others through you and through me. Your life is going to give you opportunities to have conversations and answer questions. And when those doors open up, testify to the Lord who loved you, who cleaned you up, who took you from obscurity and, and infirmity. And he gave you a life and a heritage and a spot at that table. And let somebody know how grateful you are for it and for the fact that there is a spot at that same table for them as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that we get to look at a portion of Scripture like this and just think about what was accomplished for Mephibosheth, but how it serves as such a powerful reminder to us of the very thing that you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We had nothing to offer you.
All we could come to you with was our problems. All we could do is come to you with our issues. We did not have, we did not possess the riches of your kingdom. We didn't have any of these things. All we could present before you was our spiritual lack and a heritage of living as your enemy. And yet you looked at us with compassion, and and in your compassion, in your love, you offered us a seat at your table. Father, I'm just so grateful for that, and I'm so grateful for the fact that as we look at what you revealed to us in 2 Samuel 9, and then see the words that your son Jesus Christ spoke in Luke 13 and Luke 14, as we think of these passages together and realize what you have in store for those who know you and those who love you, Lord, it's an amazing thing. But again, Lord, we wouldn't even know you, we wouldn't even love you if you hadn't revealed yourself to us first, if you hadn't opened our eyes to see that and understand that. So Lord, thank you for opening our eyes, and right now, Lord, I pray that you'd bring to mind that we would be thinking about those in our life that as of yet do not understand this truth, and we just collectively lift them up before you. And we pray, Lord, that as you have opened our eyes and caused us to value a seat at the table, a seat at your table that you've given to us, that that's important to us now. We pray that that would be important to those, of, those that we love, those that we care about, people that are in our life who as of yet have not re- received that gift. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities to represent you well. We know that we're not responsible for their salvation, whether or not they come to know you. We know that's not our responsibility, but our responsibility is to serve as your ambassadors and willing spokespeople who never shy away from saying how grateful we are for how good you have been. So, Lord, make great use, we pray, of that testimony as it flows from our lips and gets demonstrated through our lives and also gets demonstrated in the ways we choose to serve one another. We pray that that would serve as a powerful testimony to your goodness, just as David's kindness to Mephibosheth serves as a testimony that does that very thing. It points us directly to you. And that's the kind of life we want to live as well. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the gift of salvation that you've offered to us. It cost you so much, and yet you offer it to us freely. So we're grateful for the privilege to receive it through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we commit ourselves to you right now and pray that you would work in our lives to just testify to your goodness in every opportunity that you give us to do so. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.